All right, Jeremiah chapter number 5. I'd like to preach a short message to you tonight. I said I'd like to. That doesn't mean I will. Uh, but that's my plan tonight, Jeremiah chapter number 5. And I just want to give you one main thought and then three smaller thoughts. And then each of those three smaller thoughts have about two smaller thoughts. And that won't take long, will it? Jeremiah chapter number 5. I'd like to read one verse to you and then we'll pray. The Bible says, Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. Let's read that again. It says, Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word tonight in a particular way. That you'd do an extraordinary work in our hearts. Help us to see, Lord, uh, the seriousness of this truth. Help us to understand that in our lives it's exercise, Lord. As we get out of fellowship with You, there's things that we could have gained, things we could have had that we miss as a result of it. And help us, Father, from this passage to take something that will affect our hearts to Your glory. If there's one amongst us that's lost, show them their supreme need. Lord, their need of the Christ of Calvary and of redemption from their sins. And of all these things that we ask, Lord, we're going to be sure to give You the thanks and the praise and the honor and the glory, Lord. And we do ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have a simple truth presented in this one verse. I could give you a lot of context about this verse. I won't give you much except to say that as Jeremiah is dealing with a backslidden uh, Israel or Judah, if you prefer more properly, uh, even though it was the people of Israel, the tribe of Judah and of Benjamin, the lower nation of Judah, uh, he's dealing with some things that he's going to name a few verses down. You're welcome in your own time uh, to read those passages further. You'll find that he's dealing with earthly things that have been withholding from the children of Israel. But I believe you'll be helped as you study your Bible to understand that uh, though we don't uh, correlate completely the church and Israel together, and we shouldn't, and I'd say very plainly that I am a dispensationalist. I don't believe that Israel is the church, and I don't believe the church is Israel. I do believe that Jews can be saved by the grace of God, and uh, when they do, they're part of the church. I understand that. But we do find that God is dealing with His people in the Old Testament. We find that even though we're in the age of grace and we're in the church age, God is still dealing with His people. And the same way that He dealt with an earthly people in earthly matters, He's dealing with a heavenly people in heavenly matters. And so as you study the Old Testament, the Bible says that these things are written for our admonition. Uh, In other words, there's some things we can gain from them, some things that we can understand. And this passage teaches us a simple principle, that the same way that for an earthly people their sins had withholding earthly things, that for a heavenly people our sins can withhold heavenly things from us. I'd like for you to get one main thought in your mind tonight before we go any farther in the message, and that is this thought, when I sin, it affects my life. You know, I fear sometimes that we live and we feel that we can do anything we please and there'll be no ultimate consequence to the things that we've done. Or even more horrifying, the thought that we believe that because we're saved by God's grace, we can continue in sin. The Apostle Paul said, God forbid. In other words, that doesn't just mean, no, you shouldn't do it. But what it means is that thought is so apostate, that thought is so blasphemous that God won't even allow it in His presence. God forbid that we should think that we can continue in sin that grace may abound. Now you say, preacher, are you saying that now, even though I'm under the blood of Christ, if I sin that I won't be forgiven? No, that's not what I'm saying. 
I believe 1 John 1, 9. I believe if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and I'm thankful for that. But I do understand that sin still has consequences for us. It affects, excuse me, our life every single day. I'd like to give you three areas of your life and of my life that sin can rob us of some things that we need. I believe it's important, and uh, one of these days I, I plan on preaching a message on seeing our true needs. And one of the needs that we need to understand is that we're in a battle every day, and there's no portion of our relationship with God that we can do without. You know, if we're going to see our family one to Christ, if we're going to see our family strengthen, if we're going to see the church grow, if we're going to see our lives amount to something for Jesus Christ, then we need every day of fellowship with Him that we can get. Uh, we can't, uh, I understand, uh, in your life and in mine, there's going to be days when we're not serving God. But let me say that those days are days that could have been something greater and could have been used for God's glory. In this passage, it tells us that our sin is going to withhold some good things from us. And I want to give you three things tonight that I believe that sin causes us to miss out on in our lives. I want to say, number one, that when we sin, we miss out on available peace. You say, preacher, what do you mean we miss out on available peace? Are you saying we don't have peace with God when we sin? Well, in a positional way, we always have peace with God, thanks to the blood of Christ and the cross of Calvary. But there is a peace, what we might call an effectual peace, or maybe an experiential peace, uh, that we do miss out on when there's sin in our lives. I want you to hear what the Bible says in Isaiah 26, 3. That will keep him in perfect peace. Boy, I, I'll be honest, my flesh would love to stop right there and just uh, say hallelujah and move on without reading the next part of the verse. But I've got to read the next part of it because it's just as much truth as the first part. That will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. So we find that this peace is a conditional peace. It's perfect peace, but it's conditional upon something. Now, Christ made this statement in John chapter 14. You might ask, well, how do I get peace? Well, if you're saved by the grace of God, you've already got peace that's available to you. John uh, chapter 14, verse 27, Christ said, Peace I live with you. Not uh, as the world uh, giveth. He said, Peace I live with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Christ said, I'm leaving you with peace. Now, we're going to deal with this a little bit later on, but in the context of John chapter 14, he's talking about the Holy Ghost. So when he says, I'm leaving peace with you, what was it he left when he ascended on high? The Bible says uh, that the Comforter came and lived within us. The Holy Spirit is the effectual giver of peace. Christ is the positional giver of peace. He gives us peace through the person of the Holy Ghost. But the Bible tells us that these things are conditional. You say, preacher, are you saying the Holy Ghost is conditional? No, not at all. Uh, if you're saved by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit uh, is in you at all times, and He'll be with you forever, the book of John tells us. However, we find, and let's just be honest, how many people do you know, even Christians in this world, that really have the peace of God in their life? I wonder how many of us have spent restless nights. I know I have. I wonder how many of us have spent time worrying over things. Uh, it's funny we say sometimes, well, that's not worth worrying over. You tell me what is worth worrying over. The truth of the matter is, when we have a sovereign God on the throne, uh, there's nothing that's ultimately worth worrying over, but still we worry. We look all around us and we see a world that's troubled. The Bible says that Christ gave us peace. Why do we not have peace? 
I want to give you two reasons that I believe when we get sin in our life, we lose that peace with God. And I would encourage each of us tonight to ask ourselves some questions. Number one, I would encourage us to ask ourselves, am I lonely? And if I'm lonely, why am I lonely? Am I troubled? And if I'm troubled, why am I troubled? Am I scared? And if I'm scared, why am I scared? Am I doubting? And if I'm doubting, why am I doubting? I want to say that I understand in the infirmity of the flesh, many times we allow some things to creep into our lives that we ought not to, but let me say that sin is the main cause of doubt and worry many times in our lives. I'm not saying that if you worry about something, it's because you're a drunkard or an adulterer. What I'm saying is that doubt in and of itself is a sin. Because when we doubt, what we're really doing is we're really looking at God and saying, God, I don't believe you can handle my life. When we worry, what we're doing is saying, God, I don't know that you're faithful enough to take care of what I'm going through. I want to give you a couple things. You just jot them down. Let me say that the first reason that sin robs us of our peace is because it brings about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You know how a person, one of the main ways that a person knows that they're saved? They can't sin and be happy anymore. If you're a child of God, oh, sin has pleasure for a season. There's no question about that. But my friend, if I could go out and live like the world and live like the devil and live like the trash in this world and it never convict me, I'd be concerned about my salvation. Because the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit of God lives within us and that when we sin, it causes us to grieve the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in Ephesians 4.30, "...and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption." Let me tell you something. A child of God, when he's got sin in his life, is not in harmony with the Son of God. The Bible tells us in John chapter number 1 that our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Whenever we have sin in our life, it creates a barrier. It doesn't make us no longer a child, but it puts a wedge between us and our relationship with the Lord. And there's no peace when the Holy Spirit of God is convicting our hearts. I don't know if you remember the day that you got saved. I remember the day that I got saved. And I can tell you, when I was aware... And I cried no big crocodile tears. I, I, I did not uh, weep and cry aloud. Some of you did. I did not. But it was a very troubling thought when I understood that if I died at that moment, I'd die and go to hell. And let me say that that conviction that took place in my heart that day, I still feel something similar to that to this day when I sin and do wrong. The Spirit of God bears witness with my spirit and shows me that I'm in the wrong, that there's sin in my life. You can have no peace when there's sin in your life because the Spirit of God won't give you peace. I'm reminded of the story of Jonah. You know, uh, you know why God chased after Jonah? Because he loved him. Jonah probably wasn't very comfortable. He had no peace whatsoever. He tried to do everything he could to get away from God. Have you ever met somebody that you could tell was running from God? I've, I've met people like that. And it seemed like in their life they'd go anywhere and do anything to try to gain some kind of peace and get away from God. Jonah did that. Jonah set out uh, on a ship headed for Tarshish. He was going to go anywhere except for Nineveh. Funny thing about it, though, God found him on the ship just like he could have found him anywhere else. And uh, what did God begin to do whenever uh, he found Jonah on the ship? And I know God knew where Jonah was at the whole time. He brought a storm about. He robbed Jonah of his peace. Jonah became so unhappy 
that he would rather have died than get right with God. You know what he said? Jonah knew. Jonah knew what was going on in his heart and his life. He knew he was uh, living in sin. He knew he was wrong. When those mariners came to him and uh, asked him what the problem was, he said, just throw me overboard and all this trouble will leave you. Jonah was so unhappy with his life, he would sooner die than face God about his sin. He'd sooner die than get his heart right. Uh, what was going on in Jonah's heart and life. I believe, even though the Holy Spirit of God did not indwell Old Testament believers, I believe the Spirit of God was troubling him. I believe God came along and uh, shook his basket, so to speak, made him aware of his sin. It was probably uncomfortable in that whale's belly. No doubt Jonah was very uncomfortable. No doubt Jonah had no peace. You can read uh, through the prayer that Jonah gives when he's in the belly of the great fish. And there was no peace in Jonah's heart. Why? The Spirit of God was not allowing him to have peace. Let me give you a second reason, I believe. Uh, when a believer has sinned in his life, he's convicted by the Holy Spirit. But let me say that he's condemned by himself. We like this verse, Romans 8.1. We all like this verse. This is another one of those verses we'd like to just stop about halfway through it. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Oh my, I've been in meetings where if you had stopped there, they would have shook the rafters off the place. They would have shouted up and down. They would have done backflips and ran aisles. But again, don't take part of the Word of God, not take all of it. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Let me tell you something. When you're walking after the flesh, not only does the Spirit of God make you aware of the sin in your life, but you know it. You know that there's sin in your life. I mean, listen, we're not as stupid as we'd like people to think we are sometimes. You ever, uh, I'm sure many of you, when you were raising your kids, your kids, whenever they were in trouble, they just became the dumbest creatures that ever lived. Well, I didn't know that was wrong. I didn't know that was wrong. You didn't want me to set the house on fire? You should have told me. That little child knows they've done something wrong. They know that they've done something wrong. You know what? They're condemned within themselves. Let me tell you why a lot of Christians are unhappy, because they know they're not living for Christ. They know what they should be doing, and they know they're not doing it. I want you to listen to what the Bible says in Psalms 51, 12. David, in the midst of his sin, cries out and says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. And the New Testament, Christ said, Your joy shall no man take. So what had happened to David's joy? When David sinned, he lost the joy of his salvation. You know why I think we have so many sour Christians today? And we do. This world's eat up with sour Christians. I mean, my goodness, you see most Christians, they just they look all the time like the sky's falling, like the world's ending, and just miserable, and everything's bad, and everything's going downhill. And that was even before this election. Amen? Let me tell you something. Nothing will rob you of the joy of your salvation like sin will. You know why? It condemns your own heart. Because you know when you sin, and I know when I sin, that Christ paid the price for that sin. And we know that it was that sin amongst others that nailed him to that cross. We know that we're doing wrong. We know that we're sinning. Half the time, people uh, that are miserable in their life, you know, all kinds of people come to, to a pastor for counseling. And that's good. That's who you ought to go to uh, is your pastor. But half the time, people don't really want the truth of the matter. They want to come and they want somebody to give them affirmation and pat them on the back and encourage them. When the reality of the matter is the reason most Christians are miserable is because they're not living for Jesus Christ. 
They were living for God. They'd have a peace. The Bible says uh, that if we with prayer and supplication will make our requests be made known unto God, the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed on Him. But let me tell you something, friend. If you have sin in your life, you'll never, ever, ever be happy. Ever. Now, a lost person can have sin in their life and have some kind of shell of happiness, as much happiness as they can know. They don't know true joy, but as much happiness as they can know, they can have that. But a believer cannot have happiness in his life if there's sin in his life. It's impossible. So you miss out on available peace. And if you don't have peace in your life, I would recommend the first place that you start taking inventory to be your own life. Don't look at where you work. Don't look at what you drive. Don't look at where you live. Look at your own life and say, is there something in my life that could be causing me to not have fellowship with God? I want to give you a second thing tonight, and you jot this down, that we miss out on answered prayers. Answered prayers. You say, preacher, are you saying that sin can affect my prayer life? Yes, absolutely. I understand that none of us deserves to be in the presence of God. And I understand that we come boldly to the throne of grace. It's not the throne of works, but it's the throne of grace. It's not even the throne of mercy, but it's the throne of grace. I understand that. And I understand that because of the blood of Christ, we can draw near with a full assurance. I understand that. But let me say that when we have sin in our life, two things are going to happen. For one thing, it's going to hinder our prayers being answered. But the second thing, it's going to cause us to pray less. Old D.L. Moody used to say about the Bible, and this could be said about prayer too, that this book will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And the same thing could be said about our prayer closet. Uh, Prayer will keep us from sin. There's no question about it. But many times sin will keep us from praying. Do you know why? Because we feel very sharply our unworthiness to be in His presence. We're aware of sin in our lives. I don't know if you're like me. I mean, listen, I I know I'm not as spiritual as a lot of people. I know. But you may be like me. I don't know. You may be one of these uh, that's hopeless and helpless like me. And I find that when I have sin in my life and I go and try to pray to God about anything, all He does is remind me about that sin. Let me give you two reasons I believe that uh, sin will hinder your prayer life. And by the way, the Bible says in James 5:16, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I believe the first reason that it causes our prayers to not be answered is because our relationship with our intercessor is askew. Listen, the only reason that any of your prayers ever reach the ears of God is because there is a mediator that takes them and puts them in the ears of the Father. It's the only reason. It's not your good works that causes God to hear your prayers. It's not your bad situation that causes God to hear your prayers. It's not that you need Him so much that causes God to hear your prayers. There is one reason that God hears your prayers, and that is because there is an intercessor to take them to the ears of God. The Bible says about Christ that He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Well, I'm thankful that He does. He ever liveth to make intercession. But what happens when that relationship with Christ is interrupted? I did not say severed, but interrupted. Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 
He will not hear me. And you know why that is? Because God cares more about your spiritual well-being than your temporal well-being. Let me tell you something. Prayer is so important in the life of a believer that if prayer is hindered through sin, God won't answer any prayer until that sin is taken out of the way. That's how important it is for the believer. Your prayer life is so important that if you get something between you and God, it's not that He's petty. It's that He understands that you can do nothing for Him without a prayer closet. And you know what God's going to do? You'll come to Him, and I've done this before. I've come to Him. I've said, Lord, I need power to preach your message. And He said, no, you need to get sin out of your life. And I come and I say, Lord, I've got a bill that needs to be made, and I need provision for it. And He says, no, what you really need is sin out of your life. And I'll even go and I'll say, God, I've got a loved one and they need to be saved. And I know you can't make them be saved, but you can interrupt and interfere in their life and show them their need of you. God, intervene in a mighty way. And He says, no, what you need is to get sin out of your life. You know why God does that? Because He loves me that much. And He does that because He loves you that much. I don't know how many of you, whenever you were raising kids, but your child did something bad. And you know what you did? You grounded them. (laughs) In other words, what you were doing is you were withholding good things from them. You know why? Because you wanted to make them understand the hurtfulness of what they were doing. It wasn't that you hated them. It's just if you had gone on with the regular business, of course, some of you are like my daddy. You didn't ground your children. You beat them into the ground. Amen? But uh, you were withholding things from them. Actually, growing up, I did get grounded. I just got whipped first. Amen? That's how it used to be. Grounding's nothing new. It was just dessert to the main course when I was growing up. And the reason you did that is because you wanted to make them understand how hurtful the things they were doing were. You know, a little child can't always see that what it's doing is hurting itself. can't always see that. Oh, there's some things. A little child goes and puts their hand on a stove. They know right away that that hurts them. But a little child that grows up and doesn't want to eat anything but cotton candy and ice cream... He doesn't understand at that time why that's a problem. One of these days when his teeth is rotten out of his head, he's going to understand it. But you see, you have the foresight to understand his greater need. And so you know what you do? You withhold things from him. You force him to do the right thing. You know why you do that? You don't do that because you hate your child or your grandchild. You do that because you love them. When the relationship is askew, when there's something hindering the relationship, when you've done something wrong, God many times will force our focus to be on whatever that matter is between us and the Lord. Let me give you a second reason, not only because our relationship is askew, but because our requests are amiss. I was reading there in the book of Romans again today about how the Spirit itself helpeth our infirmities. And, you know, I always read that, and uh, you know how sometimes you read the Bible and you read it your way instead of reading it God's way? And I've read that passage many times about how the Spirit helpeth us because we know not how we ought to pray, right? That's what it says, we know not how we ought to pray. And, you know, we use the analogy a lot, and I've used it, and I believe there's some truth to this, uh, that whenever we pray, we don't really know how to put it, but the Spirit of God takes it, translates it into something fit for the ears of God so that uh, it's able to be answered in a way that will glorify God. And that's true, but I read that verse again, and I found out I had it just a wee bit wrong. It says, we know not what... We ought to pray. Let me tell you something. You don't even know what the greatest needs in your life are. Neither do I. God knows what those greatest needs are. 
Let me tell you what the Spirit of God does. Not only does He take and conform those prayers to something fit for God, but He takes and calls those prayers too. I just want to say thank God for some unanswered prayers in my life. Things that I thought I needed. Things that I couldn't live without. But I'm thankful that God was willing to go in between my prayer and my future and call some things out and make a way where I couldn't see a way. You know, the Bible says in James chapter 4 and verse 3, one of the reasons uh, that we do not have our prayers answered, the Bible says, "...ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts." The fact is, one of the reasons we don't get our prayers answered is because we don't need them answered. It hurt us more to have them answered than it would for them not to be answered. But I've got a question. The Bible says the reason why we ask amiss is that we might consume it upon our own lust. The fact is, when we have sin in our lives, it causes us to ask for the wrong things from God. I believe it's time that Christians get the right kind of burden again. There was a time, and I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for temporal things. God asks us, He begs us, He bribes us to pray and ask for temporal things. I don't believe it's wrong to pray for a new car and a new house. There's nothing wrong with that. But I wonder how many of us have prayed for things that one day will burn up and never prayed for things that are eternal. I wonder how many of us have prayed for that new job, but we've not prayed for that new baby to be saved? How many of us have prayed for that new car, but we've not prayed for that loved one that needs Christ? How many of us have prayed uh, for that new house, that new opportunity, whatever it is, and we've got lost loved ones on their way to hell that we've never prayed for? Why are we asking those things? Is it wrong to pray for those things? No. But I do believe it's time that Christians get their priorities straight about some things. And as long as we are living, living with a temporal attitude, we will never pray eternal prayers. As long as we are living focused on the things of this world, we'll never live for the things of the world to come. The truth is, when we have sin in our lives, it causes us to ask for temporal things. We're consuming everything upon our own lust, and we want to do that in our prayer life as well. So I believe that absolutely sin can cause our prayers to go unanswered. I wonder what it might be in your life that you've been praying for for a long, long time. And I wonder if it could be. I'm not your judge. God is your judge. You work this out in your own heart with the Holy Spirit and the Son of God. But I wonder if it could not be because there's something in our life that needs to be addressed that we will not address. I'm reminded of Peter there in Luke chapter number 5, I believe it is. Christ asked him to launch out a little ways from off the land. It didn't seem significant, you know. It didn't seem like a lot to ask. But after he had launched out a little ways... God told him to launch out into the deep, to take a bigger step. I'll clue you in on something. If he hadn't launched out a little ways, he could never launched out into the deep. I think a lot of times we're wanting to launch out into the deep, but we're not obeying God in the little things. God's just asked us to launch out a little ways from the land. We're asking God to intervene in a big way in our life, and we're not doing the small things that God's asked us. I wonder how many of us, and I'm as guilty as anyone, but how many of us, if we paired the time we use for recreation and leisure versus the time that we spend at the feet of our Savior, how many of us would be ashamed? God doesn't ask too much of us. You know that? He really doesn't. You know why we think, you know, God doesn't ask for much. He just asks for all of us. All of us. That's all God asks for. And you know why people are not willing to give God all of themselves? Because they think too much of themselves. They think it's too big of a sacrifice. Hey, it's too big of a sacrifice to give my time in the evenings. 
Too big of a sacrifice to give it that much of my paycheck. Too big of a sacrifice to give that much time to prayer. Too big of a sacrifice to give that much time to God's house. Too much of a sacrifice to live that way and act that way. He gave a lot bigger sacrifice for you. You know why we think that it's too much to ask? Because we think that much of ourselves. We think our time is worth that much. We think our energy is worth that much. Let me tell you something, friend. If we could only sit there with the same attitude as Mephibosheth, just a dead dog like me, we'd probably give more to the Savior. I want to give you a third final thing, and I'm going to hush. I believe that one of the things we miss out on when we sin is an awesome power given from God. Listen to what the Bible says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. It's interesting as you study the relationship between the Spirit of God and the believer. And by the way, the Spirit of God is not a force. He is a person. He is a person of the Godhead. He's not a force, but a person. The Bible describes several things that can happen between the believer and the Holy Spirit. One of them we've already touched on. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And grieving has the idea of a relationship that we have. Uh, You may have grieved your parents. I'm sure I've grieved mine. I'm sure my parents have grieved their parents and their parents before their parents. That's the blessing of children. Amen? I'm sure you've grieved your family members. I'm sure you've grieved your friends before. Grief is a hard thing to deal with. We grieve the Holy Spirit sometimes. But the Bible uses another word. It says to quench not the Holy Spirit. Quench it. Quench it. And now there's a lot of ways we could take that word quench. Certainly in a positive way, whenever you're thirsty and your thirst is quenched, that's a good thing. But I think of something else. The Bible says that we'd be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Whenever the Holy Ghost came down, He appeared as cloven tongues of fire the Bible talks about. And in many ways, fire can picture the Holy Ghost. The Bible says that through our actions, we quench Him. You know, I believe God wants to do great things in our life, and many times He can't. Why? Because we have sin in our life, and that quenches the Holy Spirit. He could burn freely in hearts, do a mighty work in this place, in other churches, in our own personal lives. But we have sin in our lives that won't allow Him to do it. I believe this. You don't have to believe this. There's a lot of brethren that disagree with me about this, but people ask this question. They say, well, does God bless people? I believe God blesses the Jews. God has blessed the Jews. They're an earthly people. But as far as spiritual blessings are concerned, I don't believe God blesses people. I believe He blesses His Word. You say, why do you believe that? Because the Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. He's not going to bless Ralph, not bless Carrie. He's not going to bless Charlie, not bless me. He's no respecter of persons. You say, well, who are we? Who's our person? Well, our person is nothing, but we stand whole before Him in the person of Christ. And yet we look around and there's no question. Some places are blessed above others. Some people are blessed above others. Why do you reckon that is? I believe that it's because God blesses His Word. The commandment is given of how to live, how to operate, how to function, how to obey God, how to please Him. And it's really a matter of obedience or disobedience. You see this all through the Old Testament. When God's people obeyed Him, they were blessed. When they disobeyed Him, they were punished and cursed. Why is that? Because the blessing is really not on us, but upon His Word. It's interesting. uh, Probably some of the wealthiest people in this world uh, live in probably the most sin-sick area of this country, and that's Hollywood, California. 
No question, you can look and you can see how that uh, celebrities, people that are godless, that hate God and everything about God, and yet they just have piles and piles of money. You pry into their lives, you'll find that most of them give very freely to charities, probably more so than people like you or I would. Why do you think they have all that money? Well, the Bible says to give and it shall be given unto you. You know, a lost man can take the book of Proverbs and thrive by it in a secular way. What's God blessing? Surely He's not blessing those people. He's blessing His Word. They've given and it's being given unto them. Many times believers, if they'd only obey God's Word, they'd find blessing and power beyond their belief. What do you find when you read the New Testament? It's a lot like the Old Testament. I had a fellow say to me one time, why did God use the people that He used in the Old Testament? You can go down the roster. A bunch of liars and murderers and fornicators, thieves. That's all you find in the Old Testament, just about. I mean, go down the line. Abraham was a liar. Moses was a a murderer. David was a murderer. On and on you could go. Solomon was a womanizer. Samson was a womanizer. You go down through the line and you ask yourself, why did God use men like that? He used men like that because despite all their failures, they still honored His Word. Samson's a beautiful example. Samson was a man whose life was marked with failure, and yet in many ways in his life he did honor the Lord. He did honor the Word of God. We look through the New Testament, what do we find? A bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. A bunch of nobodies that God used to shake the world. Why do you reckon He did that? How do you reckon He did that? But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That's how. Those men in the New Testament, they weren't much, for they were wholly consecrated to an almighty God. They got sin out of their life, and to the best of their ability, they kept it out of their life. Certainly they were not sinless. No one was sinless but our Lord. But they lived consecrated unto God. I wonder in your life what you might be missing out on because of sin. Maybe there's a prayer you've been praying for a long time over something. I'd encourage you tonight to look at your own life and ask yourself, God, is there anything I need to get out of my heart and my life? It could be that you're troubled tonight. You have no peace. You don't know why. Let me encourage you to look at your own life. And it could be that you've been striving to try to do something for God, but you find no power to do it. The Bible says it's not by flesh, not by the arm of flesh, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's the only way it will be accomplished. Our heads bowed, our eyes closed, the musician slips to the piano. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless this invitation, not for my glory, but yours that people would make decisions for you, not